And so the thing about it is that Christ gets in the way of this world, gets in the way of what people want to do, because what Christ says is that you are not your own master. You are not king of your life or of this world, but you need to serve me first, and you need to think of others before yourself. That message is a very black and white one. And so for those of us who proclaim that message, most people who don't want to hear it, and if they've got power and we're a threat to that power, will want to eliminate us. The road to Calvary is paved with unmet expectations. In what appears to be a high point during Jesus' ministry, we begin to see the seeds of rejection that will eventually lead to his arrest, trial, and execution as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. Our expectations can mislead us, especially when we expect God to work in a certain way. Judas's expectations were challenged when Jesus defended Mary's use of expensive perfume to anoint his feet. The crowd's expectations of Jesus being the king who would raise up an army to overthrow the Romans were also challenged as he rode into Jerusalem not on a war horse, but on a young donkey. Unmet expectations can lead us down the path of surrender, where we recognize that God's ways are not our ways, and that his ways are better. Or it can lead us down the path of rejection, where we shout, crucify him, crucify him, with the rest of the angry mob. As we near the final days of Jesus, we will see that many will choose the path of rejection, which will ultimately lead to his death. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we would like to say thank you for your time as you tune in each week. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by the content of this podcast. Please listen through to the end to learn how you can connect with this podcast and with all that is happening at St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church. And now, with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward. Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this evening. We thank you for another opportunity to study your word, and we thank you for the season of Lent. Thank you that the roads are bare. We pray that your Holy Spirit would bless the study of your word, help us to appreciate who Jesus is and what he's doing in our lives, the future we have, and the responsibility you've given us to shine his light in this world. We thank you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see everyone, and you're probably wondering, why is Father Ward smiling? I'm smiling because now I can keep track of the time. I don't want anybody looking behind you now, behind. But you see, we just put this in. So you see, now now when when I'm preaching, I can know exactly what time it is. So now you guys don't have to worry about long sermons. Because I keep track right there. It's awesome. Okay, well, uh, welcome. Uh, we're going to be studying uh, John chapter 12. And remember, John is an extremely important gospel because John articulates theologically through the scriptures, through Jesus' words, through his miracles, and through the titles that he ascribed to himself 
to highlight the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is fully God and fully man. And He has come to give us life eternal, not just life eternal, but abundant life. And that life is dependent upon whether or not we are in relationship with Christ. We access the one true God through Jesus. He is the means of God's revelation, and He is God. He is both the Word. The Word, remember, John's Gospel begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God, but yet He was God, and He became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And so all of John's Gospel is unpacking this truth. And obviously, just as the other three Gospels are all leading us to Calvary, to Jesus' death on the cross, so too with John. But John's Gospel is a little different in that the focus is more in Jerusalem and the final days of Jesus' ministry. In fact, tonight, as we look at chapter 12, there are 21 chapters in John. And by chapter 12, we are already in the last week of Jesus' life. So John's Gospel, almost half of John's Gospel, actually is devoted to the last week of Jesus. Now last week we looked at John uh, chapter 11, and that was the final greatest miracle of Jesus outside of His own resurrection, and that was raising Lazarus from the dead after being in the tomb for four days. Or three, no, four days. His body was decomposing. He was dead as could be. And yet, Jesus calls him forth. And because of this miracle, many believe. And this word gets out and people are flocking and it's, uh, the, the, the word about the miracle spreads. And at that point, the religious leaders realize that now we have to have Jesus killed. He said, if this continues, the whole world will go after him. And remember, the religious leaders were more concerned about their own personal power, their own personal prestige. They didn't want to have anything to do with someone who would take power from them. Now, if Jesus would be their servant in removing the Romans, that would be a different story. But Jesus does not play the role of servant to anyone. So tonight we're going to see the aftermath of what happened after Lazarus was risen from the dead. And we're going to see how the opposition to Jesus intensifies as well as the interest in Jesus. Because where we pick off tonight, or pick up, is the fact that Jesus is going back to Bethany, going back to the home of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, his sisters, only six days before the feast of the Passover, the greatest feast of all Israel, so Jesus is going back to Jerusalem and there's all these people coming and it's setting the stage for His arrest, His trial, His crucifixion. So let us open our Bibles now to John chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was. So again, Bethany, small village outside of the capital city of Jerusalem, less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. 
whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. How fitting. Remember the account in Luke's Gospel was Martha who was doing all the busy work. Well, here she is again serving the Lord. Well, Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And so it just highlights the personal bond and love that Jesus has with this family. And certainly Lazarus is going to be right there with Jesus because it is Jesus who he had known before he died. It was Jesus who had raised him from the dead. And so uh, how nice, what a nice image of that relationship. But then we see that Mary does something. Martha is serving. Lazarus is just kind of relaxing with the Lord. But now it's Mary who does something of great devotion. She takes a pound of very costly perfume, verse 3, of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, the amount, it says here in verse 5, that uh, the cost of this perfume was about 300 denarii, which would be the equivalent of a working man's wage for one year. So it's a large investment. And oftentimes people in that culture during that time, spices and, and what have you, ointments and, and perfumes, those type of things were very valuable. They had to be imported. And they were like considered an investment for a family because it didn't take a lot of space to store them. They were very valuable and you could use them to barter for things on the open market. If you needed cash later on, you could use them. So it was as an, as an investment. But what's significant is this valuable, costly item that Mary had, probably that which was most valuable to her, she just gives back to the Lord. She, she pours it over His feet. She's honoring Him. And she probably has a sense that Jesus' death is possibly imminent because if you remember in the last chapter, they had called Jesus to come back to them because their brother Lazarus had died. And that was during the time where they knew that Jesus the authorities wanted to arrest Jesus, that there was opposition to Jesus. And so him coming back from Perea, uh, 20 miles down back to Bethany, uh, would be a threat to him. And so now he's, all, he's back. And now with all the commotion of Lazarus being risen from the dead, uh, the, the, you know, the certainty is becoming more and more apparent that there's going to be a clash. Something has to give. So Mary, whether she fully knows or not, is, is demonstrating this incredible devotion. And notice that the fragrance fills the whole house. There's a lot of symbolism here because what it represents is the fullness of God ultimately that when we give back to God, we're just acknowledging all that He's given to us. And as we give, God blesses us more. It's that reciprocal relationship that we have that reflects true love. And God is in the business of filling everything with His abundance, with His sweet aroma, His fragrance. And, and we're to do the same. We're to fill the world with God's sweetness. 
So you can see this incredible example of devotion and giving back to the Lord. And certainly Mary not only was recognizing who Jesus is, but was probably incredibly grateful because it was Jesus who had given her light, her brother back. So remember both Mary and Martha in their distress had said, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And so what a wonderful example of love. And what is most important in life? It's our relationship with God. And even though the beautiful things of this world are fine to have, we need to be willing to give them away. But now look at the opposite reaction. We have Judas, one of the twelve, one of the inner circle, Judas Iscariot. Notice what it says about him. But, verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? So Judas is saying, hey, we can have better use for this money. Now there's a number of problems with his statement, and I'll unpack them in just a moment, but let's continue reading. Verse 6, John shed some light on his, his issue. Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So that simple statement tells us a lot about Judas's character. He was the treasurer, and he was probably the worst person to be a treasurer. Although, something is to be said that sometimes someone can be put in the position of being responsible for money, and they don't necessarily have a, uh, a problem of uh, thievery or maybe are not prone to steal, but maybe due to circumstances in one's life or just the allure uh, that they can't handle that temptation. So we don't know what the case was in Judas's life, but we do know that he was a crook and that he was taking the money. And it highlights a couple of things. First of all, that he was hypocritical because he wasn't really concerned about the poor and he had a problem. It also highlights that sometimes people who are the biggest critics of a particular vice or characteristic or quality are guilty of it themselves. Have you ever, have you ever run into that? Or sometimes the people who are the biggest whiners about some particular issue, they got their own problem. Not always, but that, that and that's exactly what was going on right here. Judas also didn't fully appreciate what she was doing in devotion to the Lord. He was losing sight of the fact that sometimes there is something to be said of giving our best to the Lord. In other words, there's something to be said, for example, of investing our wealth in making sure a church building looks nice, not to bring attention to ourselves, but to bring honor to God. There's nothing wrong with fine things, as long as those fine things do not become idols, and become an end rather than the means. Not the end of like, ooh, look at this, but rather means of pointing to God. Become a way of recognizing the greatness of God, but at the same time motivating us to be about more important things, and that is building communities. Because here's the other principle that we learn from here. Money is not the answer for the poor. Now money is needed, but the answer for the poor, for poor people, is to educate them. Christ-centered education. 
teaching them the value of work and giving them opportunities to be productive. That's how you transform societies. It isn't just throwing money at the situation. Our government is a perfect example of the danger of when you just throw money and don't have accountability, don't have ways of, of helping the community. You know that old expression, I've shared it here over the years, I'm sure you've heard it, you know, you give a, a man a fish and he can, he can feed his family, but if you teach a man to fish, he's able to feed an entire village. So that's what is also being demonstrated, that important principle, that it's just not about money. More than that. Therefore Jesus said, he basically put Judas in his place, verse 7, let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. In essence, she was kind of preparing his body beforehand. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. You see, this small verse among many in the Scriptures is a verse that cuts down this popular idea that we find in some circles, whether it be in the university setting or whether it be in certain churches. You remember liberation theology? You know, this idea that Jesus was most concerned about social justice. That Jesus is most concerned about making everything fair and just in our world. That that's why He came. He came as a revolutionary to highlight the importance of justice, God's justice. And while certainly we are to be about justice and equality and fairness, that is secondary to being in right relationship with Jesus Christ, the living God. So by virtue of Him saying, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not do not always have me, He is highlighting that the first responsibility of the church is to get the message of the Gospel of who Jesus is out. To let people know that their sins can be forgiven. That they have hope for the future and that there is a power that God can give them that will transform them from the inside out. And that will include ministering to people and meeting their temporal needs. For the Gospel is clear. James writes, if you see your brother in need and do not do anything for your brother, what kind of faith is that? But we need to understand that it's the spiritual and then the temporal, not the other way around. The temporal and then the spiritual. Verse 9, The large crowd of the Jews then learned that He was there and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom He raised from the dead. So again, it was the miracle of Lazarus that was attracting people. They didn't want to just see Jesus. They want to see this guy, man, who was decaying and now is alive. Verse 10, But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Nothing's changed. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. The disciple or the uh, student is not greater than the teacher or the master. So Lazarus also is in the crosshairs, just as his disciples would be in the crosshairs. They forsook and fled Jesus. And so the thing about it is, 
that Christ gets in the way of this world, gets in the way of what people want to do, because what Christ says is that you are not your own master. You are not king of your life or of this world, but you need to serve me first, and you need to think of others before yourself. That message is a very black and white one. And so for those of us who proclaim that message, most people who don't want to hear it, and if they've got power and we're a threat to that power, will want to eliminate us. Nothing's changed. They wanted to eliminate Lazarus as well. He was just as much part of the problem. Verse 12. So now we go from Jesus having dinner with Lazarus and spending some final time and being recognized by Mary, but also John letting us know that Judas is going to betray him, that he's not he's not really uh, trustworthy. And the, the growing uh, intensity of all this support for Jesus by the people and yet continued anger and instigation to have him put to death by the religious authorities. So now we have Jesus actually entering into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry, often called that, the only time in Jesus' ministry that His being the Messiah was publicly recognized in a way that He approved of. Remember all the other times He said, don't tell anybody. He kind of kept a low profile. Yes, the crowds would come to Him. Yes, He would teach about the Kingdom of God. Yes, He would talk about Himself. But He didn't make a big grand entrance. This was His grand entrance. And ironically, His grand entrance was not like the one of a conquering Caesar or an earthly king who would come into a city, a conquering city, he would be you know, coming with his soldiers and, and he would be dictating terms. Or if the Caesar, or even think of King David, they come into the capital city. It's with all this pomp and circumstance. It's like the ticker tape parades that we had after World War II for our generals. And the, and the, lead, the um, Caesar or the generals who were victorious when they would enter a city in triumph they would have trophies that would they would show off what they had captured and and then they would be honored by the caesar with certain awards and then they would even have the captured leaders come before them so there was this just grand celebration but jesus doesn't come in that way think about that it was just fitting or it was the same way he entered the world as a baby born not in a palace but in a cave or a stable to poor parents to peasants here he now is entering on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 9 on the next day the large crowd who had come to the feast again the feast of the Passover when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem they took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout Hosanna Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So what are they doing? They're quoting Psalm, what we now designate as Psalm 118, verse 26. And so they are treating him as if he is a king. And remember, what does John write about or that one of his disciples called Jesus? I think it was... Um, uh, when, uh, was it, uh, Philip said to Nathaniel, Behold, we found the king of Israel. John, what John is doing, uh, it's verse 26 that they're quoting, is highlighting how people were anticipating that this Jesus was special. He was our king. 
even though he was coming in a donkey, but they knew that he was fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 that says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, verse 15, Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. But would this be the king who would set them free from the Roman oppressors? Would this be a king like King David? That was the question. And we know that by the end of the week, many were disappointed because Jesus allowed Himself to be arrested, allowed Himself to be treated terribly by Gentiles, and even allowed Himself to be crucified. And so He, who they had so much hope in, who they were thinking in terms of an earthly king, was actually not the one they were looking for in terms of their own perspective. And so the same very people who were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, just a few days later saying, crucify Him, crucify Him, which is very telling of the human spirit and the human heart. It's why Jeremiah says, or the prophet Jeremiah declares in Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart of man is desperately corrupt. It's deceitful above all things. That's why we have to always guard our hearts. It's why there's that prayer that the psalmist prays It says, to see if there's any hurtful way in me, Lord, because the heart is so corrupt and deceitful. Can't trust it. So we can't really trust people. I mean, we're to trust people, but yet we need need to understand that anybody at any time can disappoint us because we're fallen. The only one who doesn't disappoint us is the Lord. Verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. See, they didn't understand all this, what's going on. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of Him and that they had done these things to Him. So it's just so neat, the honesty of the writers of the Gospels. He's saying, they're saying that, look, this is all happening. The disciples, those closest to Jesus, didn't understand the whole picture. Didn't even make the connection with the prophecies. But it was after they had died, after He had risen from the dead. And remember, after Jesus rose from the dead, what did He do? He showed the disciples through the Hebrew Scriptures or Old Testament, all the prophecies, how He fulfilled those prophecies. So the people, verse 17, who were with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about Him. For this reason also the people went and met Him, because they heard that He had performed the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. So they're kind of all frustrated. Oh, come on, this is ridiculous. We can't stop this. Rather, the whole world, or the world has gone after him. Could you imagine the commotion if you were there? And the word spreading? It would be overwhelming. And I think the Pharisees were wondering, this might get totally out of hand. So even though we desire to have Jesus killed, we're not going to be able to because everyone is going to follow him. And so then they're asking themselves, well, what is he going to do? Is he going to raise up an army to go after the Romans? Is he going to overthrow Herod? So I'm sure all these things they were thinking about. And actually, all Jesus was doing was forcing their hand. Jesus was fulfilling the mission his Father had given him. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. 
Ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www.stbartston.org. Again, that's www.stbartston.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook, head over to facebook.com slash transforming lives together podcast and give us a like. And if you're an Amazon Alexa user, say, hey Alexa, play the Transforming Lives Together podcast to hear the latest episodes. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. God bless.